All right. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Sunday. Okay, so last night, people literally were wearing coats through the service. So I see some coats, but it's, it's rather chilly. But I'm glad that you're here today. Just go ahead and uh, snuggle up next to the person next to you, uh, especially if you know them. That makes it easier. And we're going to get through this today. We're gonna, I'm real excited about where, we're, where we are and where we've come from in this series called The Story. If you're new to the church, our whole goal with this is to try to help all of us at Manuka Bible Church know and love God's Word more, not be intimidated by it, be open to it, and actually take steps into digging deeper by understanding the storyline of it. But today, I have to start with an incredibly depressing verse, and this is it. The Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. The Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. If you've been reading along with us, um, we're at chapter 16 um, in in the story, and we're seeing everything that God dreamed Israel to be falling apart. But just as a review, just to help you understand where we've come from, this is a, a modern-day picture of the Mideast, uh, the Middle East over there, and this is where our story begins. If you go back to the beginning of Genesis, the creation account takes place in, like, southeast Iraq area, right over there. And, and Scripture proclaims that God's dream and vision for humanity is this. We have a relationship with God, the one true God, and that relationship between us and God impacts everybody else. And, and that's good until humanity decides, I'm not cool with this. I just kind of want to do what I want to do. And all of a sudden, sin and hell infiltrate and poison creation. Hell has come into Eden. But God makes a promise that he's not going to throw in the towel. He's not going to, like, nix humanity as a result of that. But, but the truth is, is that God's judgment does come. Because this toxicity in hell doesn't just, it's not mitigated. It's not stopped. It spreads. And people themselves are going, are threatening the very existence of humanity. So God judges the entire planet with the exception of this one large family and says, you're going to be the seed for my hope for the future. I'm not giving up on humans, but you're going to be kind of the prototypical family that's going to make this happen. Ultimately, we go back down to to southeast uh, Iraq where we have um, God calling this guy named Abram. He's a pagan from a pagan family, and God says, you have put your faith in me. I'm calling out to you. You're going to have a family, and that family is going to be a nation. Now, if, you ha- if you're going to have a nation, you have to have three things. And I want you guys to remember this because we're going to be referring to them back and forth. In order to have a nation, you have to have people. Kind of important. Otherwise, it's an imaginary nation. You have to have people. You also have to have a government, a system to govern you. Otherwise, you're just a gathering. You're not a nation. You have to have people. You have to have a government. And you actually have to have land. So what are they? What's the first thing? Second? Perfect. Awesome. And so God says, Abraham, you're going to have those things. And he's like, but it's just me and my wife, and we can't have kids. Trust me, I'm God. And so what we see happen is that God takes him from his home over there to this new land where ultimately that nation is going to be occupied. But God says to him, it's not the time for you to occupy this land. Because in order to be a nation, the first thing you need is what? People. And he's like, great. But again, no children, no bambinos in this house, my man. And, and so God says, listen, this is what you do. Trust me on this. Even though you're, you're pushing 100, this is going to happen. And sure enough, his, he starts a family. That family eventually ends up with one kid down the road, a great-grandchild named Joseph. Joseph gets exported out into the human trafficking uh, slave trade to a place called Egypt. 
Eventually, the rest of the family, after he saves the day for Egypt, the rest of the family goes there and they start to populate the land. All of a sudden, this small minority movement that started just with a husband and a wife is now a people group that is in excess of a million people. So now all of a sudden, what do you have? You have people. The first part, what else do you need? Government. So what God does is this. He lets them know that their system of government is not going to be occupying some foreign land being slaves under some foreign king. God wants them to know there is going to be a king, but the king is going to be me. Uh, And so at Mount Sinai, God gives them the Ten Commandments, which is a, a governmental system of laws. This is how you interact with me, and this is how you interact with everyone else. Love me, love others. Jesus said if you boiled everything that was given at Mount Sinai down, it came down to love God and love others. Jesus summarized it that way, and I think that's a Really good summary. So you got people now, you got government, what else do you need? Land. And we already know where it is, because God already promised it to them. And so they go right back up, they're like, yeah, we're going to go occupy the land. And God says, trust me, you're going to do this. They're like, no, no thanks. And so they start wandering around, because they look in the land, and everyone there is like super massively, like, just roid rage out the wazoo. These guys are big, and people are, the, the people of God are intimidated They don't want to trust their invisible God to do something visible with these visible people. And so they they chicken out and they die in the wilderness. But their kids, God promises, God's thing still is, I am not going to let my promise fail. Through your kids, they're going to enter into the promised land. So Joshua, Caleb, and all the kids of the Israelites enter into the promised land. And God's promise to have a people that would be a beacon to the nations all of a sudden starts to take root. And all the different areas of of this Canaanite area of Israel were the names of Joseph's brothers. And so it's like God's promise just coming true over and over again. And God said, finally, what we have here is we have a nation. What do we have to make a nation? We've got the people. What else do we need? We've got the government. Who's the king? God. And, And what else do we have? We have, the, we have the land. We have the real estate. And so the people all of a sudden are in the place that is literally the promised land. And all of a sudden they say, okay, here's the deal. We want a king. And God says, no problem. You got one. Right, no, I, I, I know that we, you're our king, but we want a king, a king we can see. And God says, you know what's going to happen if you have a king? He's going to tax the snot out of you, and he's going to send your kids off to war. You're going to see injustice and oppression take place as soon as you put your faith in a governmental system instead of me as your king. And they say, we hear what you're saying. We still want one. And so God says, Fine. And that's what happens. And what God said would happen did happen. They have civil war. They break off. Instead of being defined by each one of those tribes, they're defined by the northern tribe of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah. And they are oppressive to one another. And they are wicked with one another. And the thing that the prophets were raised in to do was to say this. You guys are missing the boat as far as what God has called us to do and be. To have a relationship where we love God and loving others. As we said last week, the two things the prophets railed on is idolatry, forgetting this, and and treating the foreigner and the marginalized poorly, which was this. God said, you are my beacon. Like, heaven is exhibiting through you. And instead of heaven being exhibited through you, you are like, like a storehouse for hell. When people see you, they're not seeing a picture of me. They're seeing a reflection of the worst part of them. And so God sees hell in his countries, these two countries, Israel and Judah. And so, hear me on this. God takes the hell and he gets the hell out of Israel. And that's exactly what takes place. 
first happens with the northern kingdom because they were way more wicked. God gets that out, all, all the hell that was combined inside of them, he gets them out, and they are going to the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire takes them over, and that was bad. And then the southern uh, kingdom, even though they were better, they were still ignoring this and ignoring this, and God got them out of the situation as well. Now, here's the thing that I need you to, to pay attention to with these arrows. Look at this map. What is wrong with this picture? They've gone backwards. The very place God took them from in the first place to bring them to their own nation and their own land has been devastated because of the fact that the people of God have rejected him as king, as their governmental king, he is now taking them out of the land and they've gone right back to their origin points. They've retrograded. And tonight, today, what we're going to be focusing in on is actually just what's taking place at this point. Before the southern kingdom gets exiled, when the northern kingdom is taken over by Assyria, then that, that, that absolutely messed up empire starts to ooga, ooga, ooga around Judah. It's kind of like, um, if you ever looked at a map of Manukkah, and you see how Shanahan just ooga, 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 it's exactly like that. And so the Assyrian empire is like just coming in. I, I, honestly, I've, for the past 20 years, I've wondered when Shanahan's just going to like take us over. And then I can go to their water park without paying anything. So, all right. So, because it's that good. All right. So, you got this situation. And if you read chapter 16, that's where we're at. And the king of Judah at the time is Hezekiah. He's freaking out. And you would be too. These are Assyrians, folks. This isn't like, this is not the Taliban. This is not communists. This is worse like that, than that combined. The person he's dealing with specifically we see in history and in scripture is Sennacherib, this dude right here who looks like Nick, Nick Dertinger. Sennacherib <laughs> is a guy who is absolutely devastatingly wicked. Everything Assyria was, he was that and then some. Because they're children here, I'm dead serious about that. I, I want to encourage you to Google this later. How, Assyrians war practices. When they came into a country, what they would do to the land and what they would do to the people and what they would do to the children in front of their families to devastate you psychologically was unspeakable. And he comes in, Senator Ibb comes in and he sends a message to Hezekiah and he says, you better like just surrender to us. I don't know why you guys are putting up such a fight. You know who we are? We're Assyrians. Do you know what we do? You've heard the stories. Do you know what we did to the Israelite brothers of yours to the north? If they didn't, they could have just looked at the art. If you look at Assyrian art from that time frame, they depict what they did to the Israelite northern kingdom. And that, that, that was like the tame stuff of what they would pull off. But in addition to the actual physical torture, and the, or the physical, like, do you know what we'll do to you? They, Assyrians had this war practice of doing this. They worshiped the god um, um, Asus, or Asus, one of the two. But one of the things is that, that they, would, they worshiped that god in the midst of a bunch of other gods, but they would come into your land, and whatever god you worshiped, they would say, oh, you worship the one true god, Yahweh. Guess what? We were talking with Yahweh. He's on our side. He actually told us to do this to you. Now, here's the problem. That, we know that that's just psychological warfare that wasn't true. But the person that let them know that it wasn't true was a guy named Isaiah. Isaiah was the prophet of this time. And this is what Isaiah said. Yes, because of Judah's wrongdoing, we are going to be exiled at some point. It's going to happen, but it won't be these guys. God's going to protect us from these guys. You continue to hold the ground we have. 
Do, even though we're oogled around, do not, do not fall into the fear that these guys are going to take us over because they're going to take over a whole bunch of people, but eventually they're going to be taken over and those guys are going to come in and get us. But it's not going to happen right now. Now, what, what Isaiah is as a prophet is he, he brings a reality check. He actually came into his ministry 20 years before the northern kingdom gets, bailed out, gets exiled out. And the thing that Isaiah does is the first thing that he does for, for those people and for us is this. Isaiah, in this reality check of what he's providing, he shows the picture of how it should be. Isaiah shows the picture of how it should be. Isaiah, just in his own life, is showing a radical difference and distinction from the rest of Israel and Judah. And take a look. If you've got your copy of the story, go to 224. If you've got your Bible, you can go to Isaiah chapter 6. And in 224, this is, this is when we have recorded um, Isaiah's um, coming into the ministry where God gives him a vision. This is, and, and this is the coolest thing. How, how many of you have had like seriously weird dreams before that you remember when you wake up? Okay, and you're, how many are really, really happy when some of those freaky, weird dreams are, are just fiction? They weren't reality? Okay, Isaiah has a freaky, weird dream, but it was a dream and reality simultaneously, which is weird, but that's what happened. God gives him this vision. This is on the last paragraph of 224, Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, Seated on a throne. Oh, by the way, when he says Lord there, the word in Hebrew is Adonai. So remember that. And the king, in the year that the king, Uzziah, the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Adonai, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they, they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And if you're Isaiah in that dream, you have to stop and say, no, it's not. No, it's not. The whole earth is filled with your glory. I just watched as the northern kingdom got exiled out because of their sin by an evil empire. I'm looking at my brothers and sisters, not trusting in God, but trusting in hopefully Egypt or something else, or maybe their own military might, but they're not trusting in God. I could tell you how so many parts of the world are not full of God's glory. And all of a sudden in that moment, you almost see a psychological like, like stutter step when he realizes, I'm not. I'm not depicting God's glory. And listen to his next couple of words. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, Adonai, Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. In this dream, Isaiah, his conscience is, comes up to, to, to the brick wall of God's holiness and he is broken. And what he does is he shows us a picture of how it should be. You, every single one of us in this room, have come to a point 
at some point, maybe it's even this past week, where we've looked at our moral failure, our spiritual failure, or our, the fact that, like, I just, I, why is it that this habit is so hard to kick? Why is it that I feel like when I'm stressed, I keep on doing this? Why is it that, that my brain automatically goes to this negative space that projects out and barfs out negativity on the people around me that I work with, that I live with? Why? And, and you've, you've had that situation of feeling like I feel the reality of my spiritual failure. Israel and Judah and Isaiah handle that radically different. Israel and Judah's way of reacting to that is it's not a problem. It's not a problem. And they live in denial or cover-up. When you're living in denial or cover-up, you're not living authentically. You're not living real. Flip side, Isaiah actually shows us what it looks like to be authentic, to be real with God. And it starts off with a self-awareness of his sin. Remember, like when he's, he's contemplating the holiness of God, all of a sudden he gets to the reality that that's not me. That's not my story. And he has the self-awareness to know that he is a sinner. Have you had that? Have you, have you, have you been there? Or, or have you like instantly in self-protection mode, you, you don't have self-awareness, you have self-protection, and you start to deny, deny, deny. That's human, total human condition. If you don't believe that humans deny stuff when they do stuff that's wrong, just watch the news. It happens all the time. This is a human condition, but Isaiah shows us a different example. But not only does he have self-awareness of his sin, he has surrender. He actually lets God do what God wants to do with him. And the seraphim comes and brings, and again, this is all symbolic in this dream, but he brings this live coal and touches it to his lips. Why? Because it's almost as if God is saying, you know what? You do it. You have like, an, you are bleeding out. You're, the wound in you is your mouth, the thing that's attached to your face and the things that you say. And I'm going to go to that wound and I'm going to cauterize it. I'm the only one who can heal it. And right now, if I let you continue to go, you'll never experience healing and this will be the death of you. So I'm bringing this to you. Will you surrender to my healing? Self-awareness, surrender, and then sending out with purpose. And this is, this is so cool because God doesn't, in that situation, doesn't say, okay, great, you're forgiven. Go as a forgiven one. Be blessed. He stops with saying, now we have an issue. We have a world that's broken all around you. Who will speak for us? Who will we send? And Isaiah, after having the self-awareness of sin that was taken care of by God, says, here am I, send me. You may have come to a point where you look back on something that you've done and you've disqualified yourself eight times over because of it. And God is waiting for you to have the self-awareness to let him deal with your sin that he can bring you back into the reality of life that he's got you for and the mission he has for you. I want you to remember this. God never draws us close without sending us out. We don't, we don't, we don't, we're not drawn close to God as we worship him in, in, in word and song just to go out and have things just to be the same. We are sent out once. That's why when you, if you leave the parking lot and you go out Wabina, it says, and now off to be real in the world. That's because that is our mission. NBC, you are sent into the world as people who are representing God. Isaiah, Isaiah showed us the way it should be. But not only did he show us the way it should be, he also shows us the way it had to be. He prophesied the way that it had to be. If you have uh, your story um, book, it's on 225. And th this is actually selections from Isaiah 3, 8, and 13. And I'll go ahead and let you know when those are. But go ahead and start on page 225, last paragraph of the page. This is where he's talking to Judah, the southern kingdom. Again, the northern kingdom, pow, 
already exiled out. So now he's talking to his brothers who are still in town. And, he, and, and he's saying, look, yeah, Assyria, they're not going to be the ones that are going to take us down, but we are going to be taken down because of the fact that we have not been the beacon that God has called us to be. See now, the Lord, the God, the, see now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and supplies of water, the hero and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman, the clever enchanter. Jerusalem staggers. Ju- Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord. If you jump down to, um, if you're in your Bibles, it's in chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. If not, you're in that middle paragraph in 226. Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms, the nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. So that Sennacherib dude who was like, hey, guess what? We've talked with your God, and he said that we're going to take you out. He, that, was, that was just a front. But the reality is, is that God actually was going to use another empire to come and bring God's wrath against Israel. What God does in that is this. God is consistently protecting Israel. And when Israel says, I want independence from you, and I don't want to treat people the way you've called me to treat them. God says, if you want to declare your independence for me, I will step back and allow what naturally would happen in people's hearts and actions to take place. And he does. And that's when they come in. God saw the hell that had been occupied his promised land and was going to get it out. Um, how many of you have gone to Haiti on one of the, the trips uh, with Monica Bible Church? Okay, Sweet. My wife um, just got back with my kids, as I told you, and uh, when she got back, it was super cool because she posted on Facebook how much it meant to her to go and stuff, and in the midst of that, she also had this really cool thing at the end which talked about how nice it was that I took care of the kids, which I was so happy she did that. I was like, I'm glad she said that, you know, because that's nice that she said that. And I was like, maybe other people will say nice things about me too. You know, and so, I, so I looked down below, and, like, and I just looked, and looked at the comment section, and I saw my brother Nate saying, welcome back, sis. Errol doesn't know what to do without you. LOL. LOL, Nate. Thank you. Appreciate that. And then Sandy said this, no fires this year at home? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Now, if you're not, if you're recently been attending Manuka Bible Church, you don't know the story, but this is what happened the first year. This is like Julie's fourth or fifth time that she's gone to, to Haiti, and the first time she went to Haiti, um, she was really nervous about that because she didn't know if she could trust me with the children. <laughs> she wanted to make sure there was four when she got back, you know, and so that was the big thing, and so I'm like, okay, this is the deal. Mission accepted. These kids are going to have an epic time, and I'm going to Mary Poppins this house until, like, it's a phenomenal. She's going to get back and just go, oh my goodness, I should leave more often. I'm like, yes. Mission accomplished. And that was my goal. I wanted, to, I wanted to show her, I wanted to make it amazing. And so, like, literally every day, we're, like, washing, di- I know, every day washing dishes. Who does? But we were doing that, and I was just like, it was like, the house was spick and span. We're doing cool things with the kids. It was crazy cold outside. We we're having wonderful fires and everything else. Um, but the day Julie was coming back, I'm like, okay, this is go time. This is it. We got to make sure that we got, I had a checklist. Okay, Micah, go do this. Carson, go do this. Cohen, just don't do anything. Uh, Ryland, go over there. And like, we just, we just had the whole house figured out to make sure everything was going to happen perfectly. So that when she got back from the airport, she'd walk in and be blown away. 
And I looked, and everything was great, except for the fireplace. We had this massive heap of ashes and everything, because we had fires every day. We're like, homework from last semester, you know, like, just cardboard, what, you know, know, it was awesome. But it was a lot of ash in there, and so I'm like, we got to take care of this. So I go over, and I take a little, like, you know, fireplace shovel thing, and I'm like, I pick that up, and I'm making a major mess in the living room. I'm like, this is counterproductive. I need a clean way to get all this out of here. The vacuum cleaner. That's, that's what I'm going to do. So I go get this Electrolux thing that we have. It's like this, you know, body of this. And then like a hose that comes out of it. And I'm like, and it's like, it's sucking it all up. And I'm like, this is amazing. And then I look at the mess that I made over here. And so I keep going back to this massive heap of ash. And it's sucking up like bits of wood and nails and junk and small animals. Whatever I put in the area. Sucking it all up. And all of a sudden, I'm, I have that moment where I'm thinking, Julie is so blessed (laughs) to be married to me. Smart man like me, loves and cares for her once. And so I'm like doing that. And as I'm thinking this thought, the thought is interrupted by smoke. And I'm looking down and I'm looking at the Electrolux and it's smoking. And I'm just like, kind of a vacuum cleaner smokes, must be very old. And then I realized, oh, it's smoking because it's on fire. But the fire was coming from the inside. I'm like, what in the world? I open it up. And apparently what had happened was when I was sucking, uh, we had, we had a, a, a fire the previous night. And one of the embers was still hot. And that little ember flies through that little happy tube of wonder into this bag that's full of flammable things like lint and dust. And all of a sudden, it's like, I open up the top, I look down, and there's this live ember with flames. And I'm like, how did that get in there? And the flames are coming out. I'm like, and I'm, the smoke is now building all through the living room. I'm like, I don't know what to do. Should I call 911? And I'm like, I, and so I just take the bag out, and I run to the door, and I take this bag, and I just chuck it out the front door. And it like, it was, goes into this, it was really snowy, it goes, and just like sinks down into the snow, and it's smoked there for the rest of the day, just smoke coming out of that, even though it was crazy cold. And I was just like, so close, I was so close, she's going to come back today, there's no way I can hide this, the whole smell, the whole house smells like burnt popcorn, how can I hide this? And I was so frustrated, but but I was happy that there was no damage or anything, but it still was like, ah, and so I texted her right away because I'm like, this is not going to be good if she just is blindsided by this. And she laughed, which I was praising God for because I was expecting something else. I was expecting this. This is Zaham. This is the word. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his Zaham, wrath. I was expecting that, and it would have been justified. But think about this. If I would have just looked at that and it's smoking, it's flaming, and I'm like, that is messed up. Man, what are you going to do? And I walked away. And I just let the thing burn a hole into my living room, take out the house, maybe damage my kids or, or threaten their life, and Julie comes home to that. What kind of a reaction would she have? Would it be laughing? No. She's like, what have you done? You let this just happen in our living room and you did nothing about it? You let this just occupy the space of our house with our children around? Do you realize what could have happened to our, do you realize what could have happened to our children? Why would you do this? The word for, for this, zaham, wrath, is, is absolute rage. But it's not just arbitrary, angry, you know, drunk rage. It's specific. And with God's people, it's discipline. 
When God's wrath with God's people is not just rage, it's rage from the vantage point of a parent who's watched his child nearly burn down the house. Let me put it this way. As far as God's punishment, the purpose of punishment with God is to cause a painful reality check long enough to produce a surrender of will and a reassessment of long-term trajectory. If you've got a little kid in your house and they're like, they've got an awesome toy that they love, they use their toy just to beat their sibling over the head with it over and over and over again, you take away that toy. You're taking away that and they're like, that's mine. No, not anymore. You're using this for something, you're using this for her. And so I'm taking something away. I'm recognizing it's causing pain in the eyes of this kid, but it's okay because this taking this, the pain of taking this away is far less than the pain that will happen if they continue to do this or they continue on a trajectory where this is now a lifestyle. It's the aim of it is a surrender of will. Okay, I guess I can't do this anymore. And instead, the decision to actually change your ways. It's, it's like if you have a friend, if you're in high school and you have a friend who drives drunk or you're a parent and your 16-year-old daughter comes into the driveway and she just barely makes it in and the car like clips one of your bushes and she stumbles out of the car and she's just wasted. As a parent, you look at your child with zaham and you take the keys and you take the license and, she, and she's like, what are you doing? That was mine. You gave that to me. You gave me this car. Yes, I gave you this car. But don't you understand? That's my life. It's my independence. You're taking everything from me. You're right. Because me causing you this pain is smaller than the pain that could happen to you or anyone in your path if I don't. But if, and when someone has great loss, oftentimes they'll reflect on it like, this feels like hell. No, hell feels like hell. This feels like loss. I'm giving you a taste of loss so that you avoid the hell that could come. With God's people, he disciplines God's people. The exile, that is God saying, I am going to allow you to have a painful reality check long enough to produce a surrender of will and reassessment of long-term trajectory. This is not the end. There is a hope and a future. This is why in, in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews talks about it like God's wrath with God's people being disciplined. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. In other words, I don't discipline any of your kids. Do you know why? They're not mine. That'd be weird if I did. And you're not, you're not going to discipline my kids. Why? They're not yours. I discipline my kids because I love them. They're legitimately my children. And because of that, I discipline them out of love because I care about their future. If you are not disciplined, everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. Not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us. They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good. I love that. Because even as we've been disciplined by parents, parents make mistakes. Parents are, are well-intended. I get that. But all of us as parents know that we've crossed the line at some point. The author of Hebrews is saying, God's not like that. They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained 
by it. It finishes off by saying, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. If you feel like your faith is lame, it's just weak right now, perhaps, perhaps, it's because in the very times that God has allowed you to undergo ramifications of your decisions which have been away from him, relationships you got into that you shouldn't have, decisions that you made that were self-preserving or self-glorifying, but not God-glorifying, and you ended up and you're in this situation like, why is this happening? What if God has allowed that pain to be the course correction that's going to send you right to him? And instead you're chalking it up as just like arbitrary pain and it distances you more from God, not brings you closer. What if as a believer you recognize that God's discipline is different for God's people and the intention is to bring you close? Now here's the problem though. Even though God's disciplining God's people by exiling them out, that doesn't, de- I mean, he's getting the hell within Israel out, but he's not dealing with the hell within their hearts. They're still walking, talking people who have been living in rebellion. Even if they followed God from that point on, even if the course correction took root, they still have all this on their soul. They still have the hell inside of them. How in the world will God deal with the hell without sending us there? How could God, in his wrath, deal with hell without sending us there? The way that God did that was to take the hell upon himself. And that's what, that's what, pro, what Isaiah promised. See, Isaiah projected the promise of how it will be. And in the, one of the most famous prophecies about Jesus, we have in Isaiah 53, and this is on page 228 if in your copy of the story. Listen to these words. 1,200 years before Jesus about what Jesus accomplished. Listen to these words from a Hebrew prophet talking about what Jesus would do. This is on the bottom of 228. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Have you ever felt ugly? Have you ever felt like like people wouldn't accept you for how you look and that that's an actual value point in your life? Jesus can relate. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Have you ever been rejected or betrayed by people that you care about or that you wish held you in higher esteem than they do? Jesus can relate. Are you familiar with pain and suffering? Jesus can relate. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and the rich in his death, though he had not done violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. 
to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see the offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in this land after he has suffered. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. This is the amazing thing of God dealing with hell without sending us there by bringing the hell upon himself. God destroying sin and death without destroying us by taking the sin and death punishment upon himself. Now here's the thing. If you're a Christian, you've been saved from hell. But the question is, why do you choose to live there? You've been saved from hell, a rejection and rebellion from God. You've been saved from that. Why do we choose with our choices to still occupy that place where the disappointment, discipline, and wrath of God still sting us? Your eternal judgment and wrath has been taken care of by Jesus on the cross, but your everyday life will still undergo the sting of a life outside of Jesus if you choose to live in rebellion to him. You know why? Because he is our king. And he's a king who's creating a land for us. And we, if you're forgiven by him, are his people. You know, one of the things um, that I've noticed as an adult with American politics is that I don't care which president we have, people are going to hate the dude, right? So you go back to like, you go back to uh, Clinton. People loved Clinton. People hated Clinton. Bush, people loved Bush. People hated Bush. Obama, I had to, like, one, two. Obama, people loved Obama, people hated Obama. Same thing with Trump. And, and, and the whole hashtag, not my president, is recent. But people have been believing that and fleshing that reality out all the way back, right? Here's the thing. Those people, all, each one of those presidents and every president, good, bad, and indifferent before them, were our president. We're Americans. It's part of the deal. We get the pre- person even if we didn't vote for them. They are our president. But they're not our king. We have a better king. And our king is Jesus. And even if we live in a government land ruled by someone we love or someone we hate, our ultimate king is King Jesus. Amen? And I love America. I really do. I love it even more than Norway, for real. I think America is epic. And I'm so blessed to be here. But, but, this is not the end all as far as country. There's a far better country that God is working up. He's called me not to be, uh, my, my truest citizenship is not America. My truest citizenship is a, a member of the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is working its way through my life right now and yours if you're following his lead. You are a beacon to the lost world around you of his goodness and his truth. And your King Jesus is utilizing you to let the scope of that kingdom go out. Are you choosing to follow his lead? This morning, I want to challenge you to do just that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for the fact that we truly are a people who have been forgiven by you. You've restored us. You've given us a better hope and a future than we could have possibly ever had otherwise. God, I pray right now for anyone here who has never surrendered their life to you. Lord, maybe they're just having the self-awareness of their brokenness because of their choices. Lord, I pray that they absolutely just surrender their lives over to you as the only one who could deal with their sin. Additionally, God, I pray that they, um, outside of that, recognize that you've called them into a life of following your lead. You've called them into mission. That they could start living and breathing that right now by turning to what you've done 
in your death and resurrection on the cross, exactly what Isaiah prophesied about, that you took all of our wrong on you so we could walk free, that they'll do that this morning. For the rest of us, God, let us be the people who, when we exit this building, exit on mission, expanding the kingdom that you've called us into, and we'll give you the thanks and the glory. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.